Something in the Static with Sean D. Wilson. Welcome. Something in the Static is an exploration using fact and fiction as its tools. In this first episode, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to create some attachment. You must love me. We all have a need to belong, as psychologist Dr. Bill Farrell will explain. It's easy in a very individualistic world to think that we exist in isolation, but we don't. We're born into a whole network or matrix of relationships, and uh, we're social animals, and if we weren't part of something, we'd be so vulnerable and isolated. You'll meet a mortal man, Tiberius Melchart, who doesn't always play well with others. The scalp thing is hard to explain, but once you've skinned the top of someone's head and put that onto your head, mm. Well, I think, I think it's quite good. Mm. And to finish off, there's a modern morality play about isolation. If that doesn't keep you listening, I don't know what will. I really, very clearly do not know what will. But first, let's get a bit freaky. Falling from the sky. I am falling from the sky. The ground is near. Hit. Hard. Pain. Subsiding. Left leg positioned. Right leg. Standing. Observe. Blink. Previously undiscovered habitat. Newness, unknown. Adaptation required. Hydrogen level satisfactory. Light level extreme. Light level extreme. Extreme. Adjusting. 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 Light level satisfactory. Vow test. U, correct. O, correct. A, Correct. E. Correct. Q. 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 Incorrect. 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 Correct. I. Lack. Society. Correct. Disconnecting verification processing. Lack connection. Searching for higher function. Group functions lost. Situation unappealing. Re-examining situation. Situation remains unappealing. Registering new information. Life forms approaching. Sentient. Strong breath. Cold nose. Further adaptation required. Required tail. More legs. Less ears. Fur, various and sundry, 
Life forms nearing. I must gain new grouping. Life forms present. Indicate friendliness. Method. Replicate actions. Which. Unknown. Inhaling and exhaling. Correct. Movement of tail. Correct. Display chewing implements. Incorrect, incorrect. Retracting previous test method. Smell life forms. Correct. Friendliness indicated. Disconnecting verification processing. Disconnected. Connecting into group mode. Run with group. Running with group. I run with group. I am running with the group. Run with group. The group runs. The group runs. Group function fully restored. That story was read by Sophie Kemp. You're listening to something in the static. This is where you belong. Six o'clock tomorrow morning. Thank you. Bye. I want you guys to write down for me people like people who are like themselves. I Definitely yeah. all of it. Yeah. I'm on the Viaduct Harbour here in Auckland City. And right now, a little event called the Rugby World Cup is going on. You might remember it from your distant past. And there's just people all around from many different parts of the world in this fan zone. And some of them are here to support teams from as far flung as Argentina and Georgia. I'm with, um, well, introduce yourself. Hello, I'm, I'm Dr. Bill Farrell. I'm a psychologist in private practice in Auckland, and I'm also a research fellow at Auckland University of Technology. And I'm wondering, where does the sense of identification with an abstract concept like a, a team of, of, of players come from? It's our boys, it's our team, it's we won, etc. Well, people to complete the meaning in their lives, as, as well as their local meanings from their relationships and their belonging to their local community, people also want to be a part of the global village and find a place in that. So identifying with a particular team is one way of doing that. And particularly if it, it represents one's country. And then something like this tournament creates a focus because people are here from all kinds of parts of the world and it's a chance to be part of one's team against all those other people. So, so, so the this, this sense of global belonging and identifying with a, a country, how does that differentiate itself um, from a, a local sense of identity, from the suburb you're from, the city you're in? Well, with the city ones in and the, the suburb and so on, it would probably be much more about particular relationships, particular people, one's, one's family, one's significant others, uh, one's neighbours, um, you know, one's peers at work and at school and that kind of thing. So they'd be real people and real relationships, whereas with something like um, a national team, I think there's an element of fantasy. One, one might get to know the people, but uh, one can identify with them from afar and, and feel part of things. On a broader scale, what does a, a sense of belonging to anything mean for humanity? How important is 
feeling a part of a larger society. I think it's absolutely crucial. It's easy in a very individualistic world to think that we exist in isolation, but we don't. We're born into a whole network or matrix of relationships, and a large part of who we are is determined by that network of relationships. So where we come in a family in the birth order, who's just died before us and who we replace, if you like, um, who we follow, who's alongside us. All of those things give us a, a big sense of identity and meaning and, and they're part of our belonging. Uh, we're social animals and if we weren't part of something we'd be so vulnerable and isolated. Most people feel um, at the same time a pull and also wanting to disengage from society so at some stage wanting to be loved and whatever but also wanting to rebel from what they know and what has comforted them in the past. Yes, we need a complex mix of those things so we need attachment for intimacy and that's really a part of full mental health, being able to be intimate with others. But we also need to be able to disengage and be autonomous. And as I say, it's a complicated mixture for parents to provide, but they need to provide both the care and the connection that leads to intimacy and belonging. But they also need to leave room for a certain kind of protest. I mean, not too violent a protest, but enough to enable children to pull away and think, I'm not like that, I'm different. And to give themselves a sense of their own identity and their own autonomy. So what happens if the parents aren't able to be particularly present to provide those things? Well then that can lead to what are known as attachment difficulties. If parents are available that leads to security, if they're not available that will lead to a different kind of insecurity depending on the nature of the parent. It's interesting that we tend to reproduce the pattern of attachment we have with our own parents. So if these things go unchecked then insecurely attached parents will produce insecurely attached children. I mean, thinking about social manifestations of these issues, certainly a, a major one in the UK was in the 1950s, a, a psychoanalyst called John Bowlby uh, was funded by the World Health Organization to study separation and loss, uh, principally because so many people have been separated during the war, particularly children who were evacuated from their homes to other parts of the country for safety and that led to all kinds of difficulties with attachment on reunion. Bowlby started to study those kinds of phenomena in settings that were as naturalistic as possible, so studying that they were able to look at the different patterns of behaviour and, and to sort children into different kinds of attachment style. The children who had a secure attachment had a fairly predictable pattern of behaviour. They'd quite often protest on reunion with their caregiver, they'd make a fuss. Uh, but quite quickly they'd warm to the caregiver. Children who were insecurely attached would be quite confused on reunion, wouldn't really know what to do, or would quite possibly cling in a very upset kind of way, or might well avoid, they might well not, not go to the caregiver and, and keep themselves aloof. And I think you can see those patterns in school. Um, some children just cling to the teacher and can't let go. Well, I, I guess most kids at some stage called their teacher mummy or something like sure. that. So people, well, they do right. get confused at that age. Yes, I know, but I mean, that's a transient kind of thing, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I mean, in a way, it's indicative of the child making a, a transfer, if you like. Um, you know, the, it's the familiar figure, so you give it the same name, and then you, then you realise it's a different one, so you give it its own name. Sometimes a sense of belonging can go too far. Sometimes it's, it's misplaced and or it's felt at a level that isn't quite appropriate. Yes, I, th I think that's really the, um, what's known as the insecure, ambivalent pattern of attachment. People long to belong, they're not autonomous, they're not able to separate appropriately because as well as attaching we also need to be able to separate. So they tend to cling 
but because they're not autonomous, they're quite vulnerable to feeling overwhelmed. So therefore, they, they can't remain in that clinging position. They also pull away as well when they, when they get fearful about being absorbed. We were talking earlier about sports teams and supporters groups. Some people, it becomes their whole life, um, their whole wardrobe, all, all of their social connections, all of their meaning, all of their thoughts the whole time are about their team and the next game. An individual example would be uh, dysfunctional relationships. The stereotype would be a woman who returns to a violent relationship, feeling a longing and a belonging and a wish to be with, but also a sense of not being met or understood and a wish to pull away, but a difficulty in pulling away because of not being able to be a separate self. When your sense of belonging is too strong, do you lose that sense of individual identity that the, the isolation is sort of pulling you towards normally? If you get into a group of about 500 people, it's interesting what happens that people start to say crazy things. Uh, one can find one's words coming out of somebody else's mouth and equally one can find oneself speaking somebody else's words or lines that don't really feel like one's own at all as if you've got the wrong script. And there can be a kind of merging between people and that can be a wonderful thing and that's one of the things that draws people to things like the Rugby World Cup that you can just feel just wonderful being part of a big crowd and a big group but equally if one's in a, a crowd or a large group or a mob or something that isn't in a very good place then there can be a terrible pull towards something that feels quite alien. But that could be one of the things that was going on, say, in the riots in London in mid-2011, that some people were determined to loot and take whatever they could, feeling no kind of identification with society, but some people were probably just swept along. Dr Bill Farrell, he's a psychologist in private practice, a research fellow at AUT, and thoroughly nice man. There's something in the static. Tiberius Melchard needs no introduction, but I've already written one, so it seems a shame not to use it. Tiberius is that rarest of creatures, an immortal human. As such, he brings perspective to this fast-paced, cutthroat world. Can someone so apart, so unique, ever truly belong? I was fortunate enough to be granted an in-depth interview with Tiberius Melchard, but before I could communicate with him by speech, I had to go back to the old ways and knock on his door with my fist. Hello. Hi, um, Tiberius? Yes, yes, Tiberius. Sean, Sean Wilson. Sean Wilson, your name's Sean. Sorry, mate. Just, um, well, yeah, it's, 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 a, oh, it's okay, I've waited for people most of my life. <laughs> That was a joke. <laughs> mm. um, should, should we get right yeah, into we'll it? Get, get straight into it. Okay. Sparse, like the metaphorical cupboard of manners where Tiberius would metaphorically keep his manners. The hotel suite was nevertheless a welcome relief from the worries of the outside world. Just a, just adjust. Machine working. Yeah, I'll just I'll just get a level from you. Okay. Level. He was distant, level. this magnificent immortal. Level. But this was soon Simple. rectified. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not uncomfortably close to you, am I? You, no, I'm, no, not really. I mean, you are kneeing something. Okay. Tiberius, your latest volume of autobiography is called Melchard, Man Among Men. Can you tell Man me about it, please? Oh, yes. Well, basically, it's, it just charts my life in the many groups, I guess families that I lived in. They haven't really popped up in previous 26 autobiographies, I would assume that 
comparatively, you didn't think they were that important? I, I didn't really. And it was it was just... Uh, I was actually loath to include some of this because it reveals for me um, a little bit of my some of my darker periods, some of the darker things that I've done in my time. Because, you know, let's face it, when, when people get together in tribes and groups, they can do awful things. And uh, I, my family was pretty ordinary, but... So I well, which one was this? Because I mean, you're you're a mortal. You've had a few families that have outlived plenty. You've horrified wives by the fact that they're steadily growing older while you remain young, youthful, yes. and astoundingly good looking. Yes. Well, I guess one of the first families that that was of significance to me was uh, Jesus's family. I was walking through Bethlehem, really just trying to find a place to have a, have a drink and a sit down. Everywhere was full. And the last place for me was just having to be the same manger, and I just waltzed in there, and and I came into that room a little bit before Jesus was born, and I really hit it off with everyone there. I just had a natural rapport with Mary and calmed her down through some stuff. Uh, and Joseph, Joseph and I just got on like a house on fire. In fact, we were outside having a yak while Jesus was born. He completely missed the whole thing. So I was kind of adopted by them as their son before Jesus was born. Well how, well, how old did you look at this stage? Oh, well, I was I was sort of the same age as I do now. Like, quite old. Like, I looked, I looked probably too old to be Well, older son. than them. Yeah, well, yeah, older than them. But there's no reason. There's no reason why... I don't see any reason why you can't have and, uh, a son that's older than you. Well, in, by in, quite in, a lot. No, well, not... Yeah, I mean, you were you, a few... You know, thousand years old by this time. Yeah, well, technically I was a few thousand years old. Physically, I was, you know... I mean, hundreds of thousands years old. Hundreds of thousands. I mean, really, really Mate, old. I was old, okay? I let's, mean... Let's leave it at that. Yeah. A lot of people don't like to talk about their age. I'm not unincluded I, in that just because I live forever. Okay. Okay. So, th- they took so, me on. Sorry, sorry about that. You, you just... It's fine. Okay. Forgive and forget. I needed a family, and, and this family, these people wanted a kid so bad, and when I came along, I... I, I just sort of got in the mix. Family's not about whether your mum's younger or older than you. It kind of is a bit. I mean, well, I think I think it's more about. I mean, technically, technically, what family is really about is just about union. And I've had some great unions. I mean, the, I mean, that's not your mother, really. If I mean, if it's like that, it's not. She's not my mother. I mean, not. I mean, it's just weird. No, she's not my mother. But there's no reason to say that if I wanted to go and adopt an old grandma now as my daughter. Are you going to stop me? Well, she'd be younger than you. She would. But there'd be nothing to stop you either, Sean. There would. No, there wouldn't. There's, no, no, there's, there's no legal process. Sean, there's no reason you can't go down to your local retirement village, adopt an old Gladys and take her home and call her your daughter. It's just... Well, I know, I know people who've tried. I know people who've tried. And it just it doesn't work out. Well, I mean, I, I had a friend who um, adopted a very nice old man called Benedict. He molted all over the place, he left things everywhere, and he just, he could never find his reading glasses. And it was just a really big hassle. And they were just almost, you know, waiting for him to pop his clogs. And then his feet stank, so it was just ridiculous. Of course, she could should have taken him to a kindergarten where he could have been looked after with other kids. There's only three families that really stand out for me. The next one was sort of a, a more violent phase, and it kind of proves that, you know, really... The cycle of violence is a really domestic issue. And that was with my man Genghis. Genghis Khan. Like the one with the horde in the empire? Yep, horde. I don't know. It was more of a gang. The thing I don't like about the term horde is that 
It implies that we were going around hoarding stuff, but we weren't really. We were getting rid of it. Oh, destroying and so on. Yeah, it was more of a destructive thing. Hoarders, you know, tend to collect things and look after them, like pencils or keychains or those toys that you get in Happy Meals, which are actually fantastic. What we were more into was cutting heads off, Mm. skin off the top of the head, genitalia, um, taking a woman's Okay, so yes, this does sound like a slightly darker period and you weren't collecting anything at all as a hoard. I was collecting a prestige, pride, reputation. I was occasionally keeping a trinket. Right. Well, well, in, the, in the book, you, you said scalps. You had the mm. scalp collection. I did. Yeah, I guess that was the only thing I was technically hoarding. Did, where did you keep those? I actually kept them on my head. Oh, that's a bit gross, isn't it? Well, that's where they're made for, Sean. I suppose. Did it look good? It actually did. It got a really nice layered effect. And uh, what the I, blood sort of... Joined it together. I would kind of like clean them out and hang them out. I was more, I was probably the most. Did you wear one at a time or did you wear them in one go? Often just one at a time, depending on the event. What What's what's a two scalp event? Well, two scalp is basically any event where your normal scalp's not enough. But you still want to have some sort of air of uh, occasion. So dances, uh, 21sts, uh, I guess scalping. Four scalp? Four scalp would be more extreme sports. Is there any time you'd go more than four scalp? Very rarely, Sean. I went five once, and... Um, it's hard to balance, I would imagine. It is, and you end up losing them. And, of course, once one goes, it's a real domino effect, and all your scalps are on the ground. It's embarrassing. So well, that was your time with Genghis Khan and his horde and, and, and quotation marks. Yeah, we were... Um, well, you know, Genghis's I'm, gang. I don't Genghis's know. gang, exactly. It's not a horde. I mean, he got such a bad rap, Genghis, and really, I mean, he kind of deserved it. He kind of did. But he's done nothing worse than, you know, Joe Blow from down the dairy who well, killed he, a couple of his wives. Well, numbers-wise, it's quite a lot worse. I mean, it was quite organised. Well, people don't like organisation. Like, exactly. People really don't like serial killers because they sort of work it out beforehand. I mean, the killing's a large part of it as well. The pity is he can't speak for himself, you know. If he was here now, he... I wouldn't understand it. You wouldn't understand a bloody word, but you'd have a look at his scalps and you'd, you'd probably get it. Tiberius Melchard, his 27th volume of autobiography is called Melchard, Man Among Men. I'll be running more of my interview with him in other episodes of Something in the Static. not lead a closeted life. He's friends enough. He's normal at most things, brilliant at some, and absolute rubbish regarding a bunch of other stuff. He's just some bloke. You might have walked past him before. You wouldn't recognise him anyway, especially since the growth of a rather haphazard pseudo-beard. Anyway, he woke up rather suddenly one day. <laughs> Here's the day before as a point of comparison. A clear difference. What had caused him to go from to that is the sound of a man waking from a dream. More specifically, it was the sound of him waking from the dream of his own funeral. To make matters worse, it hadn't been well attended. And the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. 
till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Ashes to ashes, funk to funky, we know Major Tomza. Excuse me, uh, sorry to be a terrible bother, but shouldn't we be waiting for uh, more people to turn up? We're not actually expecting anyone else. Best to get on with it, really. <laughs> And the Lord was struck out in heaven's high, hitting an all-time low. This is ridiculous. There's only two people here. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure you can't qualify, seeing as how you're doing the service, and I almost certainly can't be included as part of the head count. I don't see why not. Father, on the corpse, once you start decomposing, people tend not to include you in their activities. Yeah, so it would be unusual to count the deceased as a mourner. Why has no one come? Th they were going to. The Something came up last minute. They, they said maybe next week. Next week? But I'll be buried six feet underground by then. I told them you'd be dead and buried and all that, but... They're really, really busy right now, so maybe text them after Thursday. <sighs> that is the sound of a man waking from a dream set at his own funeral. <clears throat> that is the sound of a man realising that he is essentially alone in the world, which is a great coup for a dream insight. Normally the most constructive revelations available from the realm of dreams are that it'd be awesome if we could fly, and those are the only things stopping my life from being continual humiliation. Why was he alone? And if he was alone, surely it should be coupled to loneliness. But he wasn't lonely. He had friends. He didn't see them much, but, you know, they were busy. And after all, it's not like he was that worried about not seeing them. It's not like they were close. Oh. He was a second-tier friend, really. They hardly ever got hold of him. It was always him who arranged to meet. Somehow, he'd neglected to have any close friends. Bit of an oversight. Also, it was wrong to think of them as a group. They weren't. Most of them didn't know each other, and the ones who did wished they didn't. He used to have a group of friends. They weren't all first-tier friends, but everyone was for someone, so it worked out. How had he not noticed the steady decline in human contact? He got up, turned the radio on, and began to get dressed. It was still bad in the war zone. He didn't quite catch which one. A politician was under fire for hypocrisy. An opera singer had died. The markets were doing something. Breakfast was crunchy. He was pleased he had it. He didn't always manage it, even though it sets you up for the day. He didn't usually take the car to work. It was easy enough to walk, but it looked like rain. The weather forecast didn't mention anything, but better safe than sorry. Apparently there'd be fog tomorrow. The NASDAQ was up. He kept meaning to find out what the NASDAQ was, but it never got round to it. Someone had found a body in the harbour. They hadn't identified it yet. He looked around to the other cars. He spotted one with two people in it. The rest just had the driver the isolated, vulnerable centre of the mobile metal monolith. At work, he caught up on some paperwork left from the previous day. As the staff streamed in, he said his good mornings. The assistant administrator asked how the experiments were progressing. They were both attempting to improve their cooking skills. The assistant administrator had recently made a very passable souffle. Dramas are often set in workplaces. At work, people are forced to act and interact together before they go home to hear about other people interacting. 
It seemed bizarre that virtual people took up far more of his time than the real. And it was more bizarre that this was widely accepted as the norm. A friend called. He hadn't seen them in ages. They wanted to meet up for a movie. I haven't seen you in four months and you want to go to a film? Well, yeah. Oh, and I have to go to work straight after. So you'll have to go as soon as it's over? Uh-huh. So we'll arrive, greet each other, talk for ten minutes and then head well, into it? Well, actually I'll probably only be able to get there about five minutes before the film. Right, so we'll arrive, greet each other, talk for five minutes, head into a dark room, shuffle down the aisle to our seats, stare in silence at a projected image of people doing things for two hours, and then go our separate ways. It'll be fun. Huh. And we won't be staring in silence. I always talk through movies. <sighs> I'm not so sure I can do this. Don't worry, it's only a momentary crisis. It's no big deal that he almost only deals with his friends through computers, texting, or occasionally in order to hear that genuine, if compressed, human voice, phone calls. He'll soon forget how alone he is in the computer screen glow. It is not uncommon to be more exposed to a broadcaster than friends. The televised cricket match watched on a sunny day isn't human. The autobiography you're reading is instead of blood, filled with ink. Where are the real people? Together or apart, they're not entirely sure, because they're concentrating. Concentrating on the simulation of humanity. But don't listen to me. After all, I'm just another voice. Another sound. Not much more real than your dreams. Another simulation of humanity. There to convince you that you're not alone. You'll never have to be alone. We're here for you! Episode 1 of Something in the Static, you heard the voices of Sophie Kemp, Bill Farrell, Dan Musgrove, Lorna Wren and Walter Evers. Music was provided by myself, Glass Vaults, The Knife and Forest Spirits. Something in the Static is produced by Sean D. Wilson. Music